word. Whoa. And turn, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, beginning verse 17. We'll read through the end of the chapter. And we are, our, my goal is this morning to get through all of this material. Um, when we get to narrative sections, sometimes it's easier to take on larger chunks of scripture than maybe you're accustomed to me doing. Um, but, uh, and this is one of those cases. And so we're going to press through the balance of Acts chapter 5. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, in verse 17, Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded, uh, commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, Take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Well, this morning, um, we went a little long in the service already, so I'm going to have to talk really fast, which means you're going to have to listen even faster. I don't know how you can do that, but try we have been working our way through chapter 5 and we've built it upon the balance of what we have seen already in the book of Acts and the development of the early church's worship patterns. And we have looked carefully at their prayer time. We have looked at their, uh, at their instruction, their evangelism. Uh, we've looked at their giving as recorded here as well. And we've been able to see these glimpses into uh, facets of their worship and uh, then we also got a glimpse two weeks ago, and I have to take a little time because Pastor Reddy, of course, took last week, so it's been two weeks since you've heard this. Um, 
a little glimpse into the makeup of the church, that it was never really a pure thing, um, but even from very early times, there was a mixed multitude. And we saw that there in chapter 5, where you have uh, those who were counted of the number, those that were afraid to join them but liked what was going on, those that just came in to see the exciting things happening, and those that opposed them and really uh, were full of fear, not of God, but of the enemies of Christ. And so this kind of, after a discipline issue where you have Ananias and Sapphira dying um, by the hand of God, um, and uh, it says the people were afraid, and uh, few there be that, uh, or it says many of them didn't want to join. They weren't ready to commit to that kind of accountability that uh, when you say something in this group of people, you better mean it. There was no place really in the early church for hypocrisy. And so we end up with this mixed multitude of people. We have a group that are unwilling to commit. We have a group that are very committed. And to that group, there is being those that are coming to Christ by faith. And in addition to those, there are those that are just coming in for the miraculous activity that's going on in the church. And then, of course, we're going to engage with some of the enemies of the church uh, here in the passage before us today. Uh, and really not that dissimilar from the church through the ages. We've really had the same scenario, and we looked back two weeks ago at the Exodus, that even at that point, uh, we have a mixed multitude coming out of Egypt. There were the Egyptians who uh, truly followed after God. We had Israelites who were brought out, who were disobedient and immoral, uh, who were numbered of Israel and yet died uh, in disobedience. We also had a mixed multitude of Egyptians who believed and yet uh, had struggles giving up their Egyptian ways and uh, of fully trusting the God of Israel, even after crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, of <coughs> picking up manna every morning, except for Saturday morning. Um, and all that provision, they still grumbled, complained, and... Uh, were disobedient and were disciplined. And so in the early church, we see something very similar. And yet in the midst of all of this, some powerful things were happening. Uh, so there were those peripheral people that didn't want the accountability. They were afraid to join with the church. So they kind of participated out here. They enjoyed watching it. They enjoyed listening. And then we had others who trusted then we have multitudes coming from the community around Jerusalem, bringing all of their ill in to be healed, and demon-possessed to be uh, healed as well. And we find that it is this attraction, this uh, multi-layered attraction among the apostles as the center of this work, that immediately, for the second time now, gets the attention of the religious leaders of their day. They just don't like this at all. Not only because of the popularity, but because of the message. And we can't miss that. That's going to be critical. And in fact, it's not going to be all the religious leaders that are going to take issue with it. It's only going to be one group of them. Uh, the other group have some jealousy issues in terms of the popularity, but not so much with the doctrine that is being taught, because it is in agreement with their understanding of Scripture. And we're going to see that uh, even among those that would raise themselves up as the enemies of the church, even among them, there's not a united front there. That there are a mixed multitude among them as well. And as we're going to investigate this morning, before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this morning. And we thank you for uh, its faithful uh, presentation to us of the early life of the church. And Lord, we know that... Um, they had the same struggles that we have today, that uh, the same things need to be endured, uh, the same uh, sins were brought in by believers who did not consider their ways. And so we pray that you might uh, help us this morning to learn that we might consider our ways as the faithful among the church who was more than willing to hold themselves accountable to a high standard of righteousness, that they might receive 
the blessing of God and the power of His working in their lives. Lord, we all desire that power at work. We all desire blessing. Unfortunately, we don't all desire to walk in Your ways. The condition of those blessings, the condition of Your promises. So Lord, we pray You might convict, challenge, rebuke, correct us through your word, that we might carry forward the testimony of your church in this age. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come to the opposition. And verse 17 is where we want to pick up in our text, in our narrative. And again, this is the second time uh, for two of the apostles that they've been pulled in. Remember last time it was just Peter and John. They were pulled in. And said, what are you doing? Why, you know, and, and you're doing all this in the name of this guy, Jesus. We crucified him a couple of months ago, three months ago. Um, why do you persist? Of course, they also had uh, a healed man standing there, a lame man from birth, about 40 years old, standing there with them, uh, who also got in trouble for doing what? For praising God that he got healed. And so that's the history of this religious body, at least this portion of it. Remember, we are talking about the high priest here. It says the high priest is going to be the one that's going to say enough's enough. And we are given a little information by Luke that helps us to uh, understand what the problem was. And is the high priest belonged to a sect of Judaism called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were simply those who... Uh, held to the law, they were Jews, they, they held to the sacrifices, but one of the facets of their belief system is that they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe really in life after death. And so this is the place where you enjoy the working of God, and that when you die you just cease to exist, or you go into your eternal state, uh, whatever that is. Uh, does that sound familiar? Is that going on among the people of God to this day? Sure that this is all there really is and that there really isn't much else. And uh, several Christian, quote-unquote, Christian groups, including mainline denominations now, are starting to teach this kind of doctrine. And it is horrible error. Uh, and it is one of the facets of the message of the apostles that they hammered on people. Was that, yes, our Lord was crucified, But that wasn't the end of the story. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. And over and over again is that punchline of Peter. You crucified him. Men crucified him. The religious leaders of Israel crucified him. The Romans crucified him. You you men, we crucified him. That's what we have on our uh, sheet of, of accomplishments. We crucified the Messiah. But God raised him from the dead. And that's going to come forward again in this instance where Peter's going to defend and the apostles are going to defend themselves against the religious leadership. So as the high priest who was a Sadducee, and of course when you have a particular set of beliefs, uh, you surround yourself with people who believe like you do when you're the high priest. And so he was surrounded by Sadducees. And uh, they didn't like what they were hearing. They keep talking about this Jesus like he's still alive. That's a problem. And then it's backed up by the power of God in healing people's lives. Well, that's another problem. And then it's backed up by these multitudes showing up in the temple. We're busting at the seams over here. They never show up for my sermons like that, just for these guises. So you have all of this going on, And the high priest says, enough of that. Didn't we give some orders for these guys not to be doing exactly the thing they're doing right here in front of us on the Temple Mount? And so they raised up and they arrested them. And uh, we need to understand the authority structure um, in Israel in these days a little bit to understand how they could do this. Um, While the Romans oversaw, of course, all of Jerusalem, And they actually had a a, a Roman uh, installation right there in one corner uh, just off the Temple Mount so that from the tower they could watch all the activity going on on the Temple Mount. But they did not come 
into that area generally, unless there was an uprising getting ready to occur, something on that line. Uh, and we're going to see that when we get later in the book of Acts, where Paul is in there, and the commander is looking down and going, what is going on down there? And he takes his troops down in there and rescues Paul from being torn apart, basically, by the people. And so uh, the Romans certainly had authority there, but under King Herod and under the circumstances there, because of the nature of the Jewish faith, um, they had set aside the Temple Mount and, and the regions around it as, as kind of a, a zone that the, the religious leaders of Israel could exercise true authority. And so they had police authority over this area of land. Now they had another authority above them, but on this piece of ground, they had authority. They could not have done this anywhere else in Jerusalem, really. Um, they did do it Jesus illegally over in the Garden of Gethsemane, but they didn't have authority really to police that area like they did that night, which is why they did it at night. Okay, Because they didn't have really authority to do what they did over there. They really didn't have authority until he's brought into the region around the Temple Mount specifically. And so we have a captain of the guard, and we they have their own prison. Usually their prison, believe it or not, was in the high priest's basement. And so those of you who have been in my house, you know I have a room. No, I don't have a room like that at all. <clears throat> I've thought about making one, though, a few times. <sighs> um, but in the high priest's house, and you go there today in Jerusalem and take a tour of what they believe was the high priest's home, and way down in the lowest section, there are catacombs kind of down there, and you can see that it was obviously a prison. Um, these are obviously places to put people and, and to keep them there against their will. And so he had that authority over this region. And so um, with the authority of that, he goes in with the captain of the guard of the temple. These would be Israelites, not Romans. And he arrests them. He arrests the 12 apostles. He, he laid their hands on them, put them not in his prison, but in the common prison. And so there is a prison that they have control over, but they are getting ready to take these men to the Romans. So they put them in the common prison. They are preparing to take action against these men that somehow can take their life similarly to how they took Christ. Um, but hopefully a little bit more of open. Apparently, again, um, we are close to evening. They can't do any judicial action in the evening. At night is against Hebrew law. And so they're going to just hold them there. We'll deal with them in the morning. Again, this is a little bit like we had last time. Uh, it's going to be similarly in the future as well. And so they put them away in the common prison, uh, which means that you have a series of guards and gates uh, that are not under necessarily Israelite uh, authority or control. But the Romans recognized the high priest's right to arrest people there on the Temple Mount. And of course, at night, we have a very brief statement, verse 19, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out, um, says, stay on the temple, speak to the people, the words of this life, and gives them a directive. Your job is to go and speak God's word, and this is uh, to confirm what they had previously said to the religious leaders, we ought to obey God rather than men. They're going to repeat that in their defense later on, um, but this is God reassuring that that is the right thing to do in this circumstance. And so God is going to supernaturally deliver them out of prison. Now, you might say, well, why doesn't God do that every time? Because sometimes he does. He's going to supernaturally deliver Peter later on. He's not going to supernaturally deliver um, Paul from a lot of prisons. He does for Paul and Silas on one occasion. But remember, Paul and Silas didn't really get delivered out of prison because they never left. Because they were imprisoned illegally, and so they wanted to make force the issue there in Philippi. Um, and they just stayed there and led the guards to Christ. That's kind of fun. Um, and so, occasionally, God will deliver them in a miraculous way. Other times, he allows them to stay. And in this instance, we have to assume that God knew the plans of the high priest in the Sanhedrin, uh, that they could come to fruition and destroy these men. Uh, and so he delivers them very powerfully out of their hand without the guards knowing, without 
there be any physical evidence that this has happened. The walls didn't break down. The, there wasn't a great earthquake. They were simply led right out of the prison uh, and then told to go teach the people in the temple. And so they did. They obeyed. And that's something you're going to find the apostles doing a lot of. Um, God says it. We believe it, which means we have to obey it, no matter the price. And so they know that they have an enemy that has power and authority. God didn't say, okay, uh, the high priest is opposing you there in the temple, so why don't you go over here and preach where they don't have authority to arrest you? No. The angel says, you go right back there. You go right back into the temple, and you start teaching the people, and I don't mean after you've had you know breakfast and had a little nap or something to recover from your overnight. I mean now. And they understand that, and they make their way directly to the temple. Um, it's very early in the morning, and the other places that that terminology is used, we're talking about almost pre-dawn. We're talking about right in that time when the sun hasn't quite come up, but it's starting to get light. And they're there, ready to teach. And they're going to be teaching into the late morning, and by the time the high priest gets up, yawns, gets his breakfast, stretches a little bit, I don't know what a high priest does. You know, Maybe he had a sacrifice of the morning lamb. I don't know if they were still doing that at this point. But finally he gets around to convening his uh, full council. And so far it's only been the Sadducees. But in order to really have a legal uh, trial, religious trial, he has to call in the whole Sanhedrin. Um, and that would include not only his Sadducee friends, but it would be the Pharisees as well. And so they're all gathered together, and, and that takes some doing to get all these guys in. They're gathered in, they're ready for this big uh, trial, and uh, there's a problem. There's nobody to put on trial. They show up and say, uh, they're gone. We don't know where they are. The guards don't know. They're just gone. Everything's shut, shut securely. Everything is, is as it should be. And no one can account for any of this. And, and the response is what we want to look at. It says in verse 24, The high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things. They wondered what the outcome would be. They're already starting to go, Whoa, this isn't normal. What's going on? Now remember, this is on a backdrop that the last time they had two of these guys in there, there was a man there that was healed that they couldn't deny the miracle. And yet they still chose to oppose these people and their message. This is the nature of the heart of these men. That even when confronted with miraculous, powerful working of God, they resist the truth. So if you want to know just how dark the human heart can get, that's how hard, hard the heart can be. Even when confronted with the powerful direct working of God that you yourself say, we can't deny that a great miracle has occurred, they resisted Jesus as their Savior. And now they're confronted with 12 prisoners that disappear. The idea of wonder is of, of a fearfulness, a, 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 a expectation of, of, of some uh, foreboding going on. They're wondering, what, what's going on? What's going to happen? Um, and while they're all sitting there discussing it and wondering what's going to be, in comes a few. It says, one came and told them, saying, uh, the guys you're looking for are over there in the temple, teaching you know, the temple that you're in charge of? That you have the authority over? That you're supposed to know what's going on over there? And here you are, probably at the high priest's house, which is off the temple and uh, down a little bit lower in the city of David. Um, and they're there convened, ready to bring these guys from the prison. And here the prisoners are no longer prisoners and are serving the Lord, obeying him in the temple, openly challenging the authority of these very men. Now by the time this had come, we, not, we don't have just the early risers in the temple. By this time, the temple's full. 
And they're all listening to Peter, James, John, Thomas, all these guys, Matthew. All these guys sharing God's word and teaching there in the temple. Now there's a problem. Here comes the captain. Here comes his guard. He is ready to rearrest them. But there's a problem. The men are surrounded by people who are devouring the teaching of God's word. And so they come and they invite them to come with them. Says without violence. Essentially, we're not going to arrest you in a in a violent manner. We're basically just going to say, "Can we escort you to the high priest's house? <laughs> We'd like to have you come along with us. That'd be all right. Everybody, it's okay. It's okay. They're coming of their own will, trying to keep a mob scene from happening, which would then bring the Romans into the environment. And the Sanhedrin isn't quite ready for that yet. So they take him without violence before the high priest, and again they are confronted. Why are you doing this? We told you not to, but you're doing it. And it's Peter's response, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. The exact same response we had last time. And then he goes into the exact same message. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses. What do you expect witnesses to do but to witness to something? This is what we are called. This is the definition of who we are. And to stop doing that means to stop being what God has made us to be. And as soon as we stop witnessing of Christ to those around us, we really stop being what God meant for us to be. We are the witnesses of his work to this day. The church is to be that witness to the world that Jesus Christ is alive, that men murdered him, but God raised him from the dead, and that power of the resurrection is available to all in this setting because everyone there is an Israelite. It says, listen, God wants Israel to repent. I think Jesus said that as he stood at the outside of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How many times? We have sent prophets to you hoping you would repent. And of course, sending his own son then, when they didn't believe the servants of God, I'll send my son, maybe they'll listen to him. But no, they murdered him. Sent, son of God, sent to bring them to repentance, to turn from their wickedness to Christ. But the offer is still there now because the Messiah is risen again. And that resurrection isn't just to empower the apostles. It's not just to create a political movement. That wasn't what it was all about. The power of the resurrection was about bringing repentance to men, of bringing the forgiveness of sin, that if you turn from your sin, God will cleanse you of sin, and now you can walk in his ways. And this conjunction of these two terms, of repentance with forgiveness, I believe the order of them is important. God says, I want to bring you to repentance. And he doesn't make you repent. He draws you to it. The goodness of God leads us to it. And it's for us to drink of it. He leads us to repentance. And once repentance occurs, forgiveness of sins. You see, we want the forgiveness of sins. Just wash me white as snow. And then I can go out in the world and filthify myself. So That's a new word I just created. Um, filthify myself some more and some sin, and then I'll come back next time and I'll try to get it all washed off again. You see, we want forgiveness without its precursor. The precursor to God's forgiveness is our repentance, which means that I'm going to change my heart and now rather than seeking my ways and the ways of sin, I'm going to seek God's ways and that is our response to the gospel message. The fact that Christ raised from the dead is now an offer to me that I can have forgiveness and with that, or I can, I can respond by it with repentance and with that repentance comes God's forgiveness. And I'm as guilty as most all of you. I'm pretty sure all of you are probably guilty of the same thing of going to God, asking him to forgive something that I'm already planning to do again, knowing that it's sin. And my contention is, is that there is no 
scriptures that are really evidence that that is something God forgives. His expectation is that repentance brings that confession that brings forgiveness, that then we respond to his forgiveness by walking in his ways, by righteousness, by being holy as he is holy. And so Peter says, listen, this offer isn't just for me. It's not just for our movement. It is that all men can come to repentance and have the forgiveness of their sins. And this we are witnessing to. And we're not the only ones because there is another entity involved here. There's a 13th person on trial here. There's the Holy Spirit. He's on trial too. He's a witness. And what you are seeing is the evidence of his presence in his people. That he is the one that allows us to speak in languages we never studied. So we could communicate to people from all over the world here in Jerusalem in their own language the wonderful works of God. He is the one that gives us the power that, that we can come and heal people and just say, silver and gold I don't have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. Let's go. Woohoo! Party time. That guy's not going to. Jesus saved me. Happy. He was leaping and jumping and shouting for joy. Got everyone's attention. That's the witness of the Holy Spirit. And now men being drawn right out of prison is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Of even a husband and wife dropping dead at the evidence of their lying is a witness of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit himself witnesses in, a, in accordance with and alongside of, and literally that's his title, the alongside one, the comforter, the one who comes alongside of. And so as we witness of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes right alongside of us and he witnesses as well. And that's why the Bible says, don't sit there and worry about what you're going to say when you try to share Christ with someone. Don't worry about it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. You just got to be ready to be a witness and then he'll come alongside of you and he'll witness with you. That's the promise of God. But again, conditioned upon us being willing to witness. And then comes the Holy Spirit's witness as well. I need to move much more quickly. I want to get to Gamaliel. So this is the testimony of Peter. Of course, the enemies of Christ stopped listening at the end of verse 30. At the end of verse 30 is when the high priest and his cronies stopped listening. All they heard was this accusation that they murdered Jesus by hanging him on the tree across They didn't really pay much attention to the fact that their God, that they claimed to worship, raised up Jesus. They stopped listening. It says that they became furious or they were uh, uh, cut with guilt, literally. They're driven by a, a conviction that they had actually done that. Now, when you're cut with guilt, you have a choice what to do about it. Do you not? And what these men chose to do is rather than humble themselves and acknowledge their guilt and bend the knee before the true, one true and living God that they claim to obey and to follow and to serve and to teach about, they stiffened. And instead of surrendering to Christ, they sought to oppose him. They stiffened. They rejected it and plotted, rather than to heed the offer, acknowledge the guilt, they plotted to kill them. And this is still going to be the response you're going to encounter. When you stand up to be a witness of Christ, even with the Holy Spirit coming alongside of you, this is a very probable, not possible, probable response of those that you engage. 
that as they hear you talking about their sin, that we are all sinners, that we are all deserving of death, that we are all uh, deserving of, of eternity in punishment, that we discuss their guiltiness with them, uh, that they have violated the laws of God, that they were born in sin, um, and that they sin by commission, by their choice. Um, and the Holy Spirit comes alongside of that witness that you give and convicts them of their sin and of God's righteousness and of the judgment to come. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Not my job to convict, but it is my job to communicate, to confront them with their sin. When you do that, and that is a necessary step, and we can't, I say this lots of times because it is so prevalent in our Christianity to just skip that step entirely. Let's just go to love of God. God loves you. He's got this great package present for you. Don't you want to accept it? Sure, I'd like to go to heaven. Okay, there you go. You just have to pray this little prayer. Bam, your sins are forgiven. You didn't need to repent. You didn't need to be sorry of your sin. You didn't need to do any of that. And I want to tell you, those people aren't going to heaven. Because that's not saving faith. Saving faith is repentant. It's sorrowful. It is a, a, a bending of ourselves, a breaking of ourselves before God. And these men, having heard that truth and being cut in their heart, recognized that what these men were saying was true. It had ample evidence behind it. It could not be argued, but they didn't like it. And this is what you're going to encounter in the hearts of men. That they're not going to like it. And so the response is, instead of saying thank you so much and listening to the last half, there is forgiveness. There's a solution. Jesus came not just to point out your sin, but to save you from it. But if you don't have any sin to be saved from, there's nothing God can do for you. So the first thing we have to do is acknowledge we're a sinner. But instead of saying, thank you so much for coming and giving me the solution, instead of listening to the full message, they stop their ears. No, I can't be a horrible sinner. I can't deserve death. No, 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 no. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Just, that's what they do. I don't know what that sounded like because my ears were plugged. Was that really loud? Okay. They're like two-year-olds that don't like what they hear, so they stop their ears. This is what you're going to encounter in the hearts of men. Even religious men. And maybe especially religious people. Who think that they've taken care of the sin issue. Because they go to church. Because I give a tithe. Because I own a Bible. Because I can genuflect. None of that saves you. These men were the most religious men in Israel. And they hated this message because they didn't like the idea that they had to acknowledge that they were sinners. And this is why it's so hard to reach religious people with the gospel. It's because none of them want to admit that they really are still sinners. No matter how many times they went to church, no matter how many Bible verses they've memorized, no matter any of that, we still have to come to repentance. People on the podcast definitely need this to hear me. And so they stopped hearing. And they immediately made the people who came to them in a loving fashion, even with this strong accusation, you murdered him, but God raised him from the dead so you could be forgiven of your sin, of murdering him. I don't want to hear the last part because I never really accepted the first part. And so instead of you coming to me with a loving message of forgiveness, I'm counting you as my enemy and I want to kill you. 
That's the reality of what persecution really is. Persecution is not um, that, you know, Christians have to pay higher taxes or, or, you know, that we have to go get insurance where the government says we have to get... That's not persecution, people, all right? Let's just vacate persecution from that ideology. The government can do what the government can do. It has the authority that God invested in it. And it will be held accountable by God for that. And we have confused that with persecution. What's really persecuting you is coming around on your TV and your internet and your telephones. That's where our persecution originates. As they just wear us out of righteousness. But this is people that want to kill you. They count you as your as their enemy because they don't like this statement. You are a sinner. That's what they don't like. And frankly, in most of my messages, that's the parts you don't like either. We're dirty, rotten sinners. Why can't we get this right? Why can't we worship the way God says to worship? Why can't we live the way God says to live? Why can't we walk in His ways? And we resist because we don't want to acknowledge our sin. So they're ready to kill Him. Even the Pharisees, because they've just been accused of murdering the Savior, the, the Christ, the Messiah, Except for one guy. And one Pharisee stands up, Gamaliel. And uh, he's known to us because of one of his students, one of his star students who didn't agree with him. I want to just share with you that Gamaliel had some students. He was a teacher. Uh, All the high Sanhedrin would have had disciples, if you will, that they were to train in their uh, ways to uh, bring up another generation of leadership in Israel, and Gamaliel was one of the well-known instructors of Israel, and uh, he's going to raise up a guy named Saul. He's going to be one of his students, and Saul, of course, doesn't agree with his uh, instructor, his master, his rabbi, and uh, he contends, we're going to find Saul in chapter 7 and following, uh, doing the opposite of what Gamaliel says to do here. Gamaliel, though, is a very wise man. By the way, um, later on, we're going to find several priests coming to Christ. It says several priests are going to join the church. And so this group is not hopeless. Uh, We've met one of them. I think his name was Nicodemus back in John, who uh, had honest questions and asked uh, and really wanted to know. I want to know the truth. He had to do it in secret. Couldn't let his fellow guys know. But um, he really wanted to know. And Gamaliel is one of those men who had the wisdom to recognize that they are being judged, not the apostles. The real people on trial here are not these 13 individuals, 12 apostles and the Holy Spirit. The people who are really on trial here are the religious leaders of Israel. What are we going to do? So he has the apostles leave the room. Because you never take your own group to task in front of their enemies. (laughs) Have the enemies leave the room. Now, I'm going to take you to task, guys. The apostles are gone. Here's the deal. We've seen this all before. He names a couple of instances. One of them is kind of important because it's a secondary confirmation that there really was a census that Luke talked about back at Christ's birth. And so these aren't recent examples. These examples are from their national history, um, going back as much as 30, 40, 50 years and later. So he gives these illustrations. He says, listen, we've had rebels before. We've had rebellions crop up, um, whether it was a rebellion against them or against the Romans. And they just kind of sputtered out as soon as the charismatic leader died. Um, But in this situation... Uh, we have some strange things happening. Remember the last time, one of the things they noted about these apostles, these two, there was just Peter and John then, is that uh, they were Galileans. They're fishermen. They are not trained. They are not educated. But boy, are they eloquent. Their reasoning we can't resist. Their evidence stands in our presence. Now they're confronted with 12 of them. 
and they're not backing down. You arrest them, they get out of jail miraculously, and they show up right in your own front yard to challenge you again. And you get there with all your pomp and authority, all that the high priest carries is, didn't I tell you to stop that? We are listening to you. Because we're listening to God, the one you're supposed to be listening to. You're supposed to be our nation's representative of him. We're listening to God, not to men. And by the way, let's just rehearse our message again. Jesus Christ, you murdered, God raised from the dead for our forgiveness, our re- to lead us to repentance, to make him our Messiah. This is a whole different thing than what they've confronted before. And so Gamaliel says, listen, we've got all this evidence starting to stack up that these guys have something behind what they're doing that is not of men. And so he says, listen, if it is of men, this is all just going to, I mean, remember, we're just a few months from Christ's resurrection. Okay, Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost, and we're not very far away from that. And Pentecost is 50 days. So we're really, you know, probably three months, two to three months after the resurrection. So Gamaliel's advice is pretty crystal here that, you know, let them have their little, you know, 15 minutes of fame. They'll disappear and then we'll carry on as normal if it's of men. But if it's not, and it's starting to look, guys, like it's not of men. The stuff these guys are doing, the way they're behaving, the, the manner in which they carry themselves, we need to start considering that this might be of God, and if it's of God, what are we doing opposing it? Why would we try to fight against God? What foolishness is that? And it says they all agreed. Which we would think that the very next verse would say, so they let him go. That's not what the very next verse says, does it? They called him in, they threatened him again, and they beat him up. Then they let him go. So while they liked what Gamaliel's reasoning was, they didn't really follow what he said, and what he said was, leave them alone. But they still had their issues. They still had their hatred of them. They still had their jealousy of them. They still had the fact that the high priest and his pals didn't like the message that was there, not only because it accused them of of, uh, of murder, but also because it violated the foundation of their doctrine because it gave evidence of the resurrection. And so having been chastised a second time for at least two of them, all of them beaten, they are let go. And of course, as they left, they complained before God, saying, how could you let this happen? We have faithfully served you. Uh, we have been obeying you. Your angel delivered us only to have us being punished like this. And they went and, and shuffled their feet and kicked rocks and, and uh, said, I don't know if I want to serve Christ after all. Is that their response? That's our response. Sorry, I confused the two. That's what happens when we, when things don't go our way. Man, I went to tell them about Jesus and they spit at me. Or they slammed the door in my face. Or they called me name. They cursed at me. Oh, why aren't you smiling? Because that's what they did. And this is really another whole message. I thought I'd have time for it, but I don't have time for it. I want to take you to First Peter. We're going to do that next week because my time is up. Why? How? What is what is in their mind? Are these guys nuts? That they walk out of a beating and say, Praise the Lord! This is great stuff, isn't it, guys? Yeah, can't wait till next time! Let's go to the temple! <laughs> we'll just pick up right where we left off, see what happens! They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. This is a spirit of servanthood that God demands of us. And we're going to investigate it next week.
I thought I'd get through it all, but I'm not going to. So we're just not going to get much further than verse 41 next week. But be prepared because we're going to be visiting Peter. Because this message just resonates with him in all of his writing. First Peter and Second Peter. Mark, which was really Peter's account of the gospel. It's just going to resonate with Peter. The suffering in this life has to be well connected with righteousness because we are countercultural in every way imaginable. And that's going to produce enemies. And that's going to produce suffering. But that's not something to complain about or to bellyache over. It's something to smile and rejoice over. And so these guys left bruised, bloodied, but still bouncing, going back to the temple. We're going to obey God rather than man, no matter how much authority man tries to throw at us. Because we are God's witnesses. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us. And we do pray that we might follow this example of these men who went right back into the teeth of those that would chew them up and spit them out to share Christ. Went right back. Those that they knew would hate them, would injure them, threaten them, because you commanded it. And Lord, we really have a tough time Understanding that kind of trust. Fundamentally, this is about how much did they trust you to obey to this level. Lord, we have sung a song today called Trust and Obey, and we sometimes sing it without thoughtfulness. Lord, we want to trust you to such a degree that we can obey as these men have. We need your help. We know that you offer it freely and that it will come by your Spirit, by your Word, through your people. Lord, we pray for courage. Not because of our education, not because of our social standing, not because of our heritage or nationality simply because we've been with Jesus men might see a willingness to stand and Lord we pray for our brethren in other lands that have produced many enemies because they will not stop saying the words of life they will not stop witnessing of the resurrection They just will not stop. Lord, give us that tenacity to relentlessly share Christ in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.